Why are you a Christian? Let me ask it another way. Why are you a Christian when perhaps the person you share a home with or the people you share a home with are not? You have many of the same family background. You have many of the same experiences. And yet, here you are, a follower of Christ. Well, they are disinterested in the things of God. Why are you a Christian when perhaps the siblings that you grew up with, who you grew up under the same roof, the same life experiences, and yet now here you are, a follower of Christ, while they have no interest in the things of Christ? Why are you a Christian when the estimates tell us, the numbers tell us, between 98 and 99% of those people around us in New England are not born-again followers of Christ. Let me ask it another way. Perhaps you are here saying, why are all of you Christians? I don't get it. If that is your heart, and that is the questions you ask, I want to say on behalf of our church, welcome. We're glad you're here. And we welcome your questions in regards to, and your objections to, the Christian faith. In Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 36, we come upon a fascinating but understandably difficult passage to understand. In this passage, Jesus tells a number of stories about what it means to truly follow Him, what it means to truly trust Him. And He encounters people who perhaps appreciate Him, but do not truly follow Him. And what he reveals to us in this passage is that they do not know, they have not seen the real Jesus. Now this text is one that Jesus is speaking to non-Christians. And so that is kind of the aim of this passage, and yet I think there's going to be plenty for us who are Christians to see about how we have become Christians, why we are Christians when many around us are not, and how we might pray and apply this in our relationships with the non-Christians around us. Essentially, the argument of this passage is to listen carefully to the real Jesus and determine what you will make of him. Let me state that again. Listen carefully to the real Jesus. Not the one that perhaps you envision or you have concocted in your mind, but listen carefully to the real Jesus and determine what you will make of Him. I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 14 through verse 36. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. May God write these truths of His Word upon our hearts this morning. We're going to navigate our way through this passage in a couple of different acts, and we're mainly going to see the spiritual delusion of those who reject Jesus, and then how Jesus lifts that delusion for us to see Him. So first, in verse 14 to 23, we see this spiritual delusion. Now at the outset, I want to note, you probably picked up on this as I read the passage, this is tricky. Jesus uses strange illustrations that are hard to grasp, and he uses these to communicate with his audience. Yet God has precious jewels for us that can be mined in the tough soils of strange stories and passages like this. May this passage serve each of us well as we consider our own spiritual state. As you consider sharing the gospel with those and praying for those in your life who are not Christians. Or even as you who are not a Christian or you are not sure what to make of the Christian faith. I encourage you to listen closely to Jesus as he says and instructs in what it means to truly follow him. So with that said, first we see the spiritual delusion of of rejecting Jesus. 
This passage begins with Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was mute. He was unable to speak. And the gathered crowd responds with two objections that are both quite ridiculous. The first objection that the crowd voices is one of saying, well, he, it's rigged. It's like a magician that has the tricks figured out. He heals by the power of Satan. He heals by the power of Beelzebul, who wasn't exactly Satan, but was this prince or king of demons in, in ancient lore. And so the crowd is saying, well, he's got it all figured out. He, he is the chief amongst all the evil demons, and so he drives one out, and they listen to him, and they tell him where to go. The other response that they give is quite fascinating. They kept, in desire to test him, kept seeking from him, what, a sign from heaven. It's like, I just did one. Oh, give us more. And so they, they, they have these interesting responses, but what Jesus shows us in these responses is those who operate from this perspective of, of unbelief and distrust, they do so in spiritual delusion. Look at how Jesus responds. He, knowing their thoughts, look in verse 17. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus basically says, your words are foolishness. They're nonsense. You say, I drive out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Well, Satan's kingdom won't stand. If some are driving them in, some are driving them out, it's, it's speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And he says it's foolishness. And Jesus gets to the point of explaining the delusion of those who reject Jesus in verses 21 to 23. Now listen to this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying Satan or these these forces of darkness over the world, they have this world under their strength and under this, this, this power and control and sway. And yet Jesus is saying, I who have entered into this world am stronger than he. And I can break the shackles. I can break the restraints. I can raise the dead to life. I can free the captive and bring them to myself. Do you understand what Jesus is asserting here? Yes, he is asserting his own great spiritual power. But he is also asserting that those who do not trust him, those who do not follow him, those who have not come to new life in him, they're not casually neutral. They are under spiritual delusion, blinding them and enticing them to trust in things other than him. The person lowest on their lot seemingly without hope in this world, stumbling around on mass and cast in South Boston this morning. Or the person sailing on their yacht, later to board their private jet to fly across the country with all the pleasures of the world right at their fingertips. Whoever they are, whatever their wealth, whatever their economic status, whatever their cultural background, 
wherever they live on the planet, if they do not follow and know Christ, he's saying they're not neutral, they're blinded, they're under spiritual delusion. And only I can break that bond. Only I can give them eyes to see. Many in the crowd, think about it, they weren't supporters of demon possession. They weren't supporters of, 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 of hoping that, that evil would come upon their, their world. I think they appreciated and were grateful for the miracles that Jesus did. And yet, when Jesus says, okay, here's these miracles and now here's what it takes to follow me, they said, oh, that's, that's a bridge too far. I'll take the miracles, but not the surrender. And what Jesus holds out before them and holds out before us in his wisdom is this same truth plagues us today, plagues us culturally, and perhaps plagues you. How often are people moved by the beauty, by the wonder of creation, captivated by the most stunning sunrises and sunsets, captivated by the vast reach of things like the Grand Canyon or mountains that stretch into the heavens? How often are they moved by creation yet refuse to worship God the Creator? What other excuse could it be but spiritual delusion? Perhaps you know somebody who generally affirms or agrees with the claims of Christianity, yet they refuse to surrender their life to Him. They keep Jesus at arm's distance. Yeah, maybe they pray whenever crisis or adversity arises, but total surrender before Him, that's just not on the cards. Do you remember how this whole exchange started? Jesus healed this man who was mute. And I don't think it's an accident. I think this man signifies spiritual muteness, spiritual disability, stunted development. And what's the only solution? Jesus to break the bonds, Jesus to arrest uh, uh, that who uh, binds them and to free them from the prison that they do not know they are in. Go look at verse 20. This is fascinating. But Jesus speaking to them says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that language, that might do nothing for you, that, that phrase, the finger of God. But if you want to go in your Bible and look back to Exodus chapter 8 later, it's a story of when, when Moses, when God was bringing plagues upon Egypt, who had the people of God under their power, the Egyptians and Pharaoh had them under their control, God is bringing His plagues upon them for the freeing of His people. But what happened? Originally, the first three plagues, Satan... Or, or Pharaoh, his own magicians could equal or could, could, could do the same as those plagues. And then eventually the magicians, they tapped out. They could no longer match the power of God. And in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, they said, it is by the finger of God that these things are happening. Jesus is presenting himself as the means by which the kingdom of God has arrived the means by which the veil is lifted, eyes are open to see and behold God, perhaps for the very first time. Now, two brief points of application. Never get over the scope and the wonder of your salvation, dear Christian. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you have come to Him and you have seen Him as the one who frees you from the bonds of your own sinful rebellion against Him, and who has given you new life full of hope in Him, 
no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what this life throws at you, never get over. You, you did not make a good decision. You may think you evaluated the pros and cons of a life knowing Christ, a life not knowing Christ. You may think you had done all of these things. And yes, there is, is a decisional aspect to it, but foundationally, Jesus rescued you and brought you to life. Second point of application, may we never tire, may we never waver in our praying for God to lift this delusion from those in our own lives or those in our own community who do not know Him. To that end, I urge you, if you're able, join us in our prayer meetings, our Sunday evening services once a month. Join us in praying for Him to do that work in us and around us. And pray that for, your, for the people in your own life who you yearn to see converted. We pray because God must do the work of giving them life. So they have this spiritual delusion. Now you might ask, well, how do I know whether or not I'm spiritually deluded? Do you want the strength of Jesus? Do you want the power of Jesus, the blessing of Jesus in your life? But perhaps you are slow to surrender before Jesus. That's one way to think about it, one diagnostic question. But there's other ways here that Jesus graciously shows us and helps us think through this. And so as part of this revealing this spiritual delusion that those who do not, do not know him operate under, he reveals the danger of halfway following Jesus. This is in verses 24 to 28. See, a dangerous symptom of this delusion is halfway following Jesus. But Jesus, like a good surgeon operating on our hearts and our minds with intense precision, gives two illustrations of those who halfway follow him. But we know halfway obedience or halfway devotion is actually no obedience or no devotion. First, he gives us the illustration of those who clean their lives up but are not converted. Those who clean their lives up but are not converted. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus gives the illustration of a man who has had demons leave his life. Remember the spiritual reality that, that, that there's a supernatural spiritual component to our world and even to our lives that that, that are beyond the reach of what we can cover this morning. Yet this man has demons leave his life. He gets it all cleaned up. But then what happens? He's only invaded by many more. And ultimately, he's only worse off than he originally was. Here's what we have to understand. Coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus is, is not a way to get a better handle on any addiction you struggle with. Coming to Jesus is not a way to become a better husband or wife, a better mom or dad, a better employee in the workplace. Coming to Jesus is not turning over a new leaf, perhaps resolving to volunteer more, give of yourself more, that kind of thing. Now, coming to Jesus is surrendering entirely before Him and recognizing you need Him to bring you new life. If you're not do this, you're at risk of being under even worse of a spiritual delusion than you first were. Because Jesus warns us here of mistaking a cleaned up life for the Christian life. Do you see this? I remember the first time I went to a funeral. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. It was my grandmother's funeral. And so I had all the experiences there of, of, of the first time attending one. And I, I saw my grandmother in the casket and she was beautiful she had a beautiful outfit she looked like like the woman i knew 
the grandmother I had. And, and I, 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 halfway as I looked at her, I expected her to open her eyes. I expected her to wake up. I had never seen that before. What Jesus is showing is that if, if you've cleaned up your life, if you made yourself presentable in certain ways, or you consider yourself have, you, have, having things to boast in that you have done, these can be very commendable, and yet you can be unconverted and still spiritually dead. And Jesus warns us of the delusion of believing that. You see, now you might say on this, okay, Stephen, You've put a lot on us here, and there's a lot that we have to consider. Are you saying that we shouldn't clean up our lives? That Christianity would, would, would say, go and live whatever you want to do, have, have, indulge yourself in whatever, eat, drink, and be merry, for, for, for all is ours? No, but what I'm saying is we cannot confuse the root and the fruit in the Christian life. So the Christian life calls us to bear fruit in accord with godliness, that evidence is God's work in us, but if you have ever had a plant that had diseased roots, you'll, you, you know that it doesn't bear very good fruit because the roots are diseased. And so Jesus is saying, hey, first attention here is on the roots, not the fruit. So he's saying, if you try to bear good fruit apart from knowing me, your fruit will not be good and you'll still be spiritually dead. What he's saying is, I give you new root. I, I come and I dwell in you, and I give you new life. And then from that new life where you have repented of your sin, where you have forsaken your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance, your desire to serve your own wishes, your own dreams, your own goals, your desire to make life about you, your desire for, for things to revolve around you, your everything that makes everything about your life, that was a confusing sentence, but everything about you, Jesus says, I give you me. And I make you do by, by setting your heart upon me. And then you start to bear fruit in line with the work that I am doing in you, not in line with how you think you need to clean your life up. You see the difference there? And this is the Christian life. The Christian life is not a beckons to come clean your life up. The Christian life tells us you can't clean your life up. Christ must clean you up. That's a Christian message. And maybe perhaps you have been successful cleaning things up in your life and you think you have a pretty good grasp on it, but Jesus says to us, you can look outwardly cleaned up yet inwardly still be ripped apart. Does he have the right to investigate, to interrogate your own heart, your own soul, your own emotions, your own feelings? Because what he says is you might be able to fool everyone around you, but you can't fool me as I look inside of you. If you'd like to know more about what it means to come to Christ and Him to make you new through His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, I would love to speak with you after our service. I'm not going to twist your arm, not going to coerce you, not going to sell you anything, but help you begin to think through these questions of what it means to truly know Christ and follow Him. And to have this spiritual delusion lifted See, there's a danger of halfway following Jesus. The first is those who clean up but are not converted. The second is those who love Jesus but do not listen to Him. Verse 27, he, he, as He said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. 
Those crowds gathering, they're seeing this dialogue, this exchange. This woman cries out with a sense of adoration for Jesus. Oh, how wonderful it must be for those who are near you. Particularly for your mother. They are blessed. You are really impressive. I can only see you in the crowd. And blessed be those who are near to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There are many of our own Catholic neighbors who place a great emphasis upon Jesus' mother Mary. She is held out as a beacon of godliness, as a unique and special recipient of the presence and the mercy and the grace of God. One upon whom the blessings of God rests and one through whom we receive blessing. Yet right here, Jesus pushes the brake on anything that would lead us to believe that Mary is divine or, or a special conduit of God's blessings to us. Now make no mistake, Mary is upheld in Scripture as a model of obedience to God, as an example of obedience and trust in God as He calls her to, to, to surrender her life to Him. But here Jesus calls us and shows us those who are truly blessed are not those who have direct access to Him like His mother or through His mother, but those who listen to Him, who hear Him, and keep His Word. So Jesus says, I, I, I rescue captives. You can't come to me halfway. You know, when somebody is released from prison... They don't like walk halfway out of prison and then say, okay, I, 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 I kind of liked it there. The food was all right. I kind of got used to the lodging arrangements. I had some friends in there. You know, they don't, they don't say, all right, well, I have one foot in, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take the freedom outside of prison. No, when they're released from prison, they are brought out. They are brought into a new reality, a new experience of freedom. And this is what Jesus upholds for us. He says, we easily as human beings craft our own, our own prisons. And the walls of it are our professed love for Jesus, our, our, our seemingly obedience to Him, the ways in which our lives are cleaned up. And He says, no, I have to rip down those walls and give you freedom. And that freedom is found in your heart being captivated and grabbed by my grace washing over you. So, he asks us at this point, okay, if we say, Jesus, I concede what you're saying up to this point. Now, what does it mean? You've shown us what it means not to know you when we think we do. But what does it mean to know you? What does it mean to follow you? In verses 28 to 36, we get the demands of the real Jesus. First, we actually just saw it in verse 28. Hear and keep the word of God. This response to the woman who pronounced a blessing on those who were physically near to Jesus, it encapsulates what Jesus means for those who are near to Him. See, if you want the blessing that you think only belongs to super-Christians, You've always considered yourself at the back of the pack. 
Like if we were having a church draft or, or like the old pick them on a play yard, well, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, and you feel like I would be the last one picked, or they'd look at me and say, I don't want Billy or I don't want uh, Susie on, on my team. If you feel like, well, that, that would be me. Jesus says, actually, you want the true blessing? You want to know me? Hear the word of God and keep it. That's all there is to it. Has it ever dawned on you that listening to the word of God, listening in sermons, listening while reading scripture day by day, listening while, while participating in Bible study with other believers in one-to-one discipleship relationships or in a small group, however it may be, has it ever dawned on you that listening, listening, just listening is an act of great and divine importance in your life. In a few months, I'll have my regular, just yearly doctor's checkup. And I think of the conversations I have with my doctor as we get test results and just all of that. You, you, you all can picture that. I think of that versus earlier this week, I just got home uh, one evening, it was kind of late, and I was tired, and the TV was on, I sat down on a chair, and the TV is on in front of me, but I kind of fell asleep in the chair. And I think how in both situations, there was something, audibly speaking, that I needed, that, 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 that I was hearing, but I wasn't hearing. None of us risk falling asleep at the doctor's office, whenever the doctor is talking to us about our very real health. We fall asleep in front of the TV or we fall asleep even when others are talking to us at school or perhaps even in church. Yet Jesus shows us, no, we have to listen intently because there's power in his words. You can listen, you can prepare to listen well. Prepare for sermons each week by reading the text ahead of time. As you get ready to get into God's Word, pray for illumination, pray for insight, pray for the ability to keep His Word, to be changed by it. Not just ask, well, what do I need to know, but how do I need to grow? What, how, does this, how does this force me to keep it? Sometimes we can treat the Bible like the instruction manual for our cars. If I have a light that lights up on the dashboard, you know, I always have to open the instruction manual. Okay, what does that light mean? Okay, here's what it means. The tire pressure is low. Okay, I need to fill it up. And so we'll have like different dashboard lights that light up in our lives. Oh, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling worried or I'm feeling overwhelmed or, or whatever it is. And so then we try to find how the Bible speaks to that. We turn to passages that we might be familiar with. And that's not necessarily bad. It's not bad at all, in fact. But the Bible is not an instruction manual that stays in the glove compartment only to be brought out when a light comes on. It's actually an IV that injects God's power and purposes into us, His glory over all things, and His grace revealed to us. The Bible is not something we put back up on a shelf. It is something that is the means by which God captivates us and grabs hold of us and makes us new. So how does He make us new? Well, at the heartbeat, at the beginning, in verses 29 to 32, we see the demands of the real Jesus. The first in verse 28 is hear and keep the word of God. The second in verse 29 to 32 is hear and repent before God. Verse 29 tells us when the crowds were increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
Here's what Jesus is saying, and and do not lose sight of the wonder of this. He's saying, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish and then came out doing what? Preaching the message of repent and come to God. So will Jesus spend three days and three nights in darkness, and this will serve as a sign for those who will hear him to repent. See, Jesus references here his own coming darkness. And he's saying you are spiritually deluded. You don't hear, you don't see. He says the queen of the south, this is the or queen of Sheba, as she's referred to in many of your Old Testaments. She heard of the glory and the vast reach and the goodness of God, and she came from a long distance to hear from King Solomon to see if it was true. The men of Nineveh, they heard Jonah's preaching. They heard this message, repent, the one true God who created you, who rules over you in all power and all might. He demands that you come to him and live. But you will not live if you will not first die to yourself. And they responded in faith. And Jesus says, this generation, it's evil. I'm standing before you, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon. My wisdom far surpasses Solomon. The might and power and the miracles of which I do far surpass Jonah surviving in the belly of the whale. And you hear this and you say, okay, Jesus, wrap it up. If you've got any more miracles for us, we'll take those. But these things you're saying, they're just too much for us. And Jesus warns us against hearing him, but not repenting before him. Now you say, okay, well, what is repentance? This concept of repentance might be strange to you. You think it's just beating yourself up as if to say, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. What do I do, O Lord? What do I do, O Lord? It's being changed. It's being changed. It's the conviction that comes upon us. Recognizing that we have sinned before a holy and just God. And yet His wrath, His righteous wrath upon our sin is not measured out upon us, but is given in full upon Christ and His cross. And it's recognizing that by His grace we don't receive the judgment we deserve, but we receive an abundant feast of His mercy. But it's not just conviction. It's in confession. It's owning. It's not just intellectual assent, but it's owning this fact. And it's saying, Lord, I, 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 I stand condemned. My sin is judgment upon me. It is read before the judge. The jury has returned a verdict right and true in an instant. Yes, God, I stand condemned. And I confess it. I confess The big picture that I'm a sinner, I confess the individual sin, my lashing out in anger, my lust that I seemingly can't get a hold of, my greed, my envy, my selfishness, my, 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 I convicted, guilty as charged. And then it's receiving His grace. Seeing that He looks upon you and He doesn't say you are only convicted. But he says, and there is grace for you in Christ. Just as he rose from the grave, you can raise, be raised to new life. 
It's saying, God, by your supernatural grace, I am no longer perfect. I am changed. I have a new heart by your grace imparting that upon me. But now I need your grace to be changed. To begin to walk in that new life. And it's surrendering and submitting entire control of your life before him. That is what repentance is. Conviction, confession, correction. So we hear and keep the word of God. We hear and repent before God. And lastly, we hear and be transformed by God. Verses 33 to 36, as if Jesus has not given enough strange illustrations that are hard to understand. He gives one more. He uses this strange illustration of light that provide, will either provide total light and transformation to the person who sees by it, or it will be concealed, it will be hidden, and also lead to darkness for the one who needs to see by it. And yet the key, kind of the linchpin of the story is, how well do you see? Do you see this light? Does it illuminate things around you, or are you still groping around, grasping around in darkness? I think that what Jesus is getting at is you will either have spiritually healthy or an unspiritually healthy way of looking at yourself, of looking at the world, of understanding even Christianity and your fit in it, or the church and your role in it. And what he's held up for us is he said there's no room for halfway. There's no room for, 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 for the spiritual delusion to convince you that you are a Christian, when in fact I am laying out the terms for you here. Hear and come to me. And so Jesus puts his work paramount before us and says, you will either deny it or you will be, be transformed by it. There is no middle way. If Jesus' work is of little importance to you or you refuse to surrender under his mighty hand, then you will be blind and you will experience the spiritual effects of that blindness and that darkness. But if he opens your heart up by his power, and He begins that work of changing you. And you don't push Him away, but you draw Him in. And you find in Him not words that are hard to abide by, but words that are a breath of fresh air and new life. Then you will say, Jesus, my life, my schedule, my relationships, my future, my behavior, my attitude, my money, my, my everything, I surrender it all before you. You use it however you see fit. May the wonders of the gospel wash through me like rushing waters. And may you make this crimson heart white as snow. You look around and wonder, why am I a Christian? It's because he invited you to the feast of his grace. He lifted the veil of spiritual darkness that rested upon you and brought light. Dear Christian, resolve that you will continue to hear and keep, that you will continue to hear and repent, that you will press into being transformed by His grace. We all must regularly listen carefully to the real Jesus and determine what you will make of Him.